Hello everybody and welcome to the first episode of Caught Offside, the podcast that brings the convergence of sport, media and entertainment to life. Today I have the joy of introducing Dr. Rob Wilson and Dr. Dan Plumley. Welcome to the first episode of the pod. Hey Neil, how are you doing? Really good, thank you. Hi Neil, thanks for having us on. So before we get into the meat of the conversation today, we're on the eve of the Premier League season starting and Dan, I know the real football season started for you last week. What's your big prediction for the new Premier League season? And also, something maybe more off the pitch, what would you hope to happen this year? I think we'll probably still see the existence of the big four. I think Chelsea will try and break into that top four spot, having spent so much money ridiculously last summer. I still think there's a little bit of a way to go on that transfer window, though. So I think we'll see a couple of big deals go through and it'll be whether or not someone can extract Harry Kane, I think. Off the pitch, I think we'll start to see a lot more revenue generation coming through through fans, through match day tickets. And I think we'll start to see the emergence of a bit more digital technology. But let's wait and see what yeah. happens. It'll be interesting to see how Newcastle cope with Champions League and the demands on that squad. Aston Villa maybe for a dark horse to break into that big 6-7 if anyone's going to do that. I think in terms of relegation as well, yeah, probably looking at you know Luton and Sheffield United will struggle. I think Wolves might struggle as well. Can't see anyone else other than City winning the league. Apologies to, to both of you in the room. And yeah, in terms of you know breakthroughs, I think digital innovation is, is going to be key, isn't it? Not just now, but for the next wave of, of maybe dominating the next five to ten years or so. And I'm, and I'm sure we're going to get into that a little bit more today as well. Good predictions other than Man City uh, winning the league again. <laughs> Sorry. I think some, some reflections on some of the comments around innovation and digital, they're clearly at the forefront of the minds of people at the Premier League. There was obviously a lot of the tournaments put on in the US over the summer where digital propositions, after getting the initial interest that the match day seems to be like a very big focus of the Premier League. And then you look at the, the larger teams like Man United playing against Real Madrid, Man United playing against Arsenal, sell-out crowds record sales in terms of merchandise around those games that we're hearing as well so I think that globalization element of everything that we're talking about is going to be something that comes more and more to the forefront over the next year what are your thoughts actually on the Champions League culminating in quarterfinals semi-finals and the final in the Middle East or over in the US actually I think it's probably a natural progression isn't it I think we've said about four or five years ago that the United States was probably the the next big market to crack and then obviously the pandemic was always likely to slow that down but some of the figures you've mentioned there you can see the proposition there and and the potential for further growth and and also having had that time where the Champions League during the height of the pandemic was played as a one city knockout phase almost like a, a European Championship or a World Cup I think some of the clubs also quite like that approach so there's benefits there both ways, but I mean, for me, I think it's only a matter of time before we see something like that. You can see the appeal to the competition organisers, you can see the appeal to broadcasters, fans, everybody, you know, wins in, in various ways. So I can't see it going any other way, to be honest. I think organisations like the Premier League probably need to pull their head out of the sand a little bit, which sounds a bit odd, given the revenue generation they've obviously overseen over the last 20 years, but... NFL playing at Wembley, NBA games being played elsewhere in the world. I think it's only a matter of time until sports like the MLB. Ice hockey's probably already at it as well. The Americans have always been kind of into that revenue generation proposition, haven't they? And merchandise sales and fanatics and all of this stuff. The Premier League have always sought to generate money through broadcast rights. That's been the sole focus. And I think you know we're almost saturating that market. There's a lot more competition for it and we've got to start looking elsewhere. So whilst it might be a little bit early for Champions League and we know how backward UEFA can be at times... I think we'll start to test competitions like you know, the Community Shield that was at Wembley. I think that's a, a really obvious opportunity for, for the Premier League to start to market elsewhere. And 
I know there's a lot of dissent around a regular season match being played somewhere else in the world, I think, is only a matter of time. And if we're serious about football breaking into global markets, then it needs to happen. The traditional model that we've seen in the Premier League, like whilst there's obviously some level of saturation and some level of, I'd say, arrogance in the position it's in because of the great success, it's clearly capitalised and really monetized the media rights and the broadcast rights. And they've done a phenomenal job of it, hence why the Premier League is in the position it is at the moment. However, when you look beyond the traditional sources of revenue, which is where we really want to spend a lot of our time today, you have to think about doing things a little bit differently. You've got to be a bit more creative around it. And it brings us on to a really, really strong subject and passion point of mine, not only as a fan, but as someone who's worked in data and CRM, traditional kind of more back office type techniques is how do you bring the relationship fans and followers because fans go to games followers don't go to games but they still have levels of passion how do you tap into that and ultimately how do you move the conversation with a fan away from that really dirty word monetization we go back right to the 1940s 50s 60s the lion's share of club revenue would come through match day ticket revenue you know people would turn up on Saturday afternoon spending the money they'd probably earn during the course of the week and if you actually track that data there's a real spike up to around about 1966 where lots and lots of people are going to watch football and then it really tails off so by the time you got into the 80s you got kind of big disasters that had happened at stadia and then you had the Taylor report that came out to try and improve conditions of those stadia and when that happened We saw the emergence of B-Sky-B and the beginning of the Premier League and the globalisation of the game, which focused very intensively on broadcast revenue and then more recently on commercial and sponsorship revenue. My gut feeling is we're starting to come full circle now. So we've probably tapped out most of the traditional broadcast sources and we might talk about digital revenues and digital content strategies later. We're doing a huge amount of work around sponsorship and commercial revenue, but let's face it, there are only so many companies in the world that can afford to sponsor big globalised professional football teams. We will have to come back to the generation of money through fans. We could have a separation of fans and followers, and they can be monetized or not in very different ways. So actually, you know, really shifting the dial on that and pivoting the proposition for clubs can be really powerful because you can still have those traditional fans that will go regardless. Mm. And those are the ones that tend to get most upset when we talk about the term monetization. But that's a very different proposition to the follower in Asia or in America or in Brazil, anywhere in the world. And actually, if you're being quite strategic about that and, and separating those out as pure income streams in their own right, then you can start to differentiate. And maybe that goes some way to not upsetting those traditional fans, keeping them on side a little bit more, but also building relationships with new fans that you can then start to monetize properly in, I think, our view. I always smile when I hear that kind of traditional or typical fan. It reminds me of my father-in-law. He always talks to me about real fans. Like, who, who on earth is a real fan? A real fan is somebody, Rob, that goes down to the game on a Saturday at three o'clock. And actually, he is a type of fan. He's a historical fan that's had a season ticket for probably best part of 30 years now. He has his routine. He actually doesn't spend a huge amount of money at St Mary's. You know, he might buy a programme when he was collecting them. He'll absolutely buy a season ticket. doesn't buy a replica shirt. might buy a polo shirt with a badge on or something like that but he's not representative of football fans more globally and I think it's really quite almost obscene that we ignore this huge group of followers that are really associated with their football clubs you know you only need to look at the following on Twitter and Instagram and on TikTok to see the footprint that some of these teams have and just to say they're not fans because they can't go through the gate on a Saturday, I think is really short-sighted and that's what clubs need to really wake up to yeah not all fans are created equally 
right? And it goes back to a lot of other big industries where they've got different segmentation and different ways of wanting to engage with their customers and taking more of that direct-to-consumer or, in this case, a direct-to-fan strategy is something that a lot of the clubs are starting to look at. We've seen some appointments within some of the big six Premier League clubs alone mm-hmm. that indicates that they're thinking about it. They're just not executing and like scaling in those areas right now as well. I think something else that you, you mentioned is really interesting as well is that whole fixation with the real fan. That is inherent within a lot of the clubs as well. So interested and wary of what that match day fan thinks and wants that they focus a lot of their effort all around the live event and the fan that attends that live event. We know just through looking into the size of the social media following that a lot of the big Premier League clubs, the big European clubs have, you're talking about 1% to 5% of that overall fan and follower base that a club is spending all its time and effort. And if you think about it numerically as well, there's typically about 180 minutes of live action per team per week if you're playing Mm. twice a week. And all of that effort goes into 180 minutes. Yet you've got all of that other time in a week that you could be thinking about engaging and reaching your digital audiences who don't spend any money. I think it's been commonly quoted in lots of different circles that the average revenue per fan that Manchester United generates is 50p. (laughs) Yeah. And then you look at the size of their base that they could go after. If you doubled that, you think about the incremental revenue they can generate, and we can come on to mm. shareholder valuations, why people want to invest into the Premier League clubs and so forth on that side. It's fascinating, isn't it? You compare it against the NFL, right? The NFL do this thing called tailgating, don't they? So yeah. like four hours before the start of the game, the car parks will be absolutely jam-packed to people setting up, they'll have barbecues going, they'll have you know, beers flowing and, and have a really good time before the event. And the organisations can then capture some of that revenue. And it might be through fan merchandising. And, you know, you only need to look at the price of replica shirts over in the States to know that actually they're pretty cheap over in the UK, let alone scarves and hats and all the other product that you're able to sell. Then they pile into the game, which is elongated because of all the breaking breaking play that allow the advertising space to, uh, to be sold. And then you come out after the game and there's another bunch of time spent. Now, I appreciate that there are fewer NFL games than there are Premier League games, but you could absolutely eventize if if that's even a word that saturday afternoon experience and generate more through an experience for that particular fan but coming back to your point you know you look at the global base more people favorite or retweet a team sheet for manchester united than attend a game old trafford that's insane and none of those are probably being monetized if we want to use that word and are really attaching themselves to the club in a financial sense it's all through a very direct experience of that person trying to show their affinity with that particular team. Yeah, and I think that that's the holy grail for a lot of the Premier League teams, and also not just Premier League teams, but other sporting verticals as well, where this whole concept of the locked or the unknown fan, because they really are unknown directly, is the secret source to actually generate new revenue streams. And I think it brings us neatly onto another part of the, the conversation, because just within this room, we're all nodding heads that this makes sense, that fans and followers needed to be treated differently. They generate different revenue streams. Some of them go to an event at the game. Some of them are never going to visit. Some of them just look at Twitter. Why do the clubs really need to look at revenue and new sources of revenue? I know we talked about some saturation, but there's got to be wider factors that we should be considering and discussing. So I'd love to to get your perspectives on why we're arriving at this kind of juncture around a new level of catalyst or transformation required to drive sustainability. Rob, you mentioned that the kind of traditional broadcasting mechanisms are maybe not stagnating just yet, but certainly there is always a limit, I think. And we've seen football kind of 
be almost averse to that trend throughout history even when there's been you know economic crises and problems and people have been questioning when's the bubble going to burst the premier league have always kind of lifted the rights and and have seen phenomenal growth but we have to kind of almost treat that as the outlier i think in terms of broadcasting because they're two billion euros ahead of the next biggest league in europe so the other big four are playing catch-up so you there is a kind of level there and if you look at you know we've talked about traditional revenue streams you've got match day as it's defined now you've got broadcasting and and you've got commercial and I think what clubs have shifted to over the last maybe five years or so, and as you say, Neil, with with people now looking at recruiting people into those positions in clubs to work on commercial strategies, because that is untapped and unlimited growth. You know, there are no restrictions on it. There's a limit on the amount of fans you can get in a stadium. There's a limit on the broadcasting deals, and that's outside of the club's control. We talk about earned and, and unearned revenue in that sense, and the broadcasting one, the clubs have got very little control over that. It's at the mercy of the league they're in and, and the broadcast package on the table. So you have limits on those two. You have no limits on commercial at the minute, so clubs have been really pushing that envelope. Um, and then there's this thing that we're now talking around that maybe, you know, potentially in the future for, for a fourth revenue stream. So I think you have to look at that in terms of the two biggest drivers of income. They don't come risk free. There are risks attached to that. The reality is that whilst 70 or 80 percent of revenue might come through one or two sources, 100 percent plus of revenue is being spent on player wages and salaries. So there's a massive liquidity issue, which is it doesn't matter how many zeros we put on the on the end of the revenue column. Because somebody's sticking more zeros on the end of the expenditure column and, you know, players are being transferred for bigger money. You've you've seen over the last two years, but then pre-COVID, you know, exorbitant transfer fees being spent for, I think, have been pretty bang average players at times. You know, you had the Neymar buyout contract at 200 million euros or whatever it was that sort of artificially raised the bar so players like Philippe Coutinho is selling for 150 million it's like come on do me a favor he's in the in the traditional market he was probably worth about 90 you know Harry Maguire went to Manchester United for 80 million you know massive massive deals that are being done and clubs have to recover that cost and whether we talk about amortization we talk about financial fair play whatever it is reality a club every club needs to generate more revenue and when you've got saturated revenue sources you've got to find an alternative you talk about almost like this chasm that exists between maybe the top six clubs in terms of their revenue generating potential and also the rest of the the premier league clubs and that situation was probably going to bring some level of friction because the premier league could arguably say we will take over the monetization programs for every premier league club and probably 14 of those Premier League clubs would say, yes, please. Yeah. But the dependency on the Premier League is the same as they have the, around the broadcast rights. Mm-hmm. Whereas the big six have rightfully or wrongfully been disintermediated from controlling their own destiny. And we know what they tried to do about that a few years ago. And we won't go into too much about the European Super League today. But that is already a precursor of where the bigger clubs are looking. And it's not just greed. They know it's the future revenue generation and the ability to control revenue and their own destiny. It's a tightrope, isn't it? Yeah. You know, and without getting too academic on this, a lot of the research Dan and I do at the university focuses on really basic economic functions, right? Joint nature of production. You have to have two teams to provide this product, which is the game. So if you don't have two teams that are competing against each other, you don't sell shirts, you don't sell match day, you don't sell revenue, you don't sell commercial. Fans, generally speaking are only interested in games that have a level of uncertainty of outcome so the less uncertainty of outcome you have i.e manchester united play cheltenham town my home team 9.999 times out of 10 manchester united batter cheltenham town so no one's interested in really watching that game certainly not on a sustained basis and what we've had 
particularly in the Premier League, is this exponential growth of certain clubs against a collective bargaining agreement for the EPL rights. So, you know, Manchester United, Manchester City, as examples, £600 million worth of turnover last year. The team that finished bottom of the Premier League, probably about £180 million. So United, City, are three times bigger than the team at the bottom of the Premier League. So there's no way they can compete. So you have this stretching of competitive balance, which stretches out the competition integrity in the league, which creates bigger gaps to the competitions that sit underneath. And Dan will talk about, you know, how big Sheffield Wednesday were when they were in League One compared to every other team in that division, you know, probably 10 times bigger on a revenue basis than some of them. And this gap just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And the big fear that league organisers should be looking at is that if that gap continues to increase and continues to be out of control, then the competitive balance stretches out and the product becomes less interesting. Hence, we have things like European Super League where you take 20 clubs out of Europe. Mm. So you're advocating following something that has been apparent in the US for a really long time around no relegation, no promotions. I think it's really tough, isn't it? Culturally, you know, as an English man, born and bred, I've kind of been brought up with promotion and relegation. You know, I watch Gloucester Rugby Club try and avoid relegation from the from the Premiership in rugby when I was a kid. I try and make sure that Manchester United hopefully don't get relegated in my lifetime. The jeopardy definitely sells, and I think we can't ignore that jeopardy. But I do think we need to have a system that better shares revenue so that the, the league that those teams are participating in is much more competitive because I think it would generate better returns for everybody involved. The gap's too big. That That's the, the kind of crux of the argument as we talking right now and we talk about the European Super League to all intents and purposes the Premier League was a breakaway league back in 1992 they just kept the door open with promotion relegation which we rightly want to protect as a cultural thing and and I absolutely agree with that and I think that's the biggest challenge for English football in the wider conversations we're having you know we talked earlier about the Premier League looking to do a top four competition in America as an example we've already seen Spain and La Liga move their version of the Community Shield to different markets the cultural thing in English football is fantastic as a as a traditional fan. He but hasn't got that, a season it, ticket of Sheffield Wednesday. <laughs> no, but, but the jeopardy. <laughs> I can understand why as well. <laughs> and Sorry, the, Dan. And the jeopardy goes either way, doesn't it? Because from a fan perspective, it's great. From an investor point of view, it's a real risk factor. But you can see it all the way down the levels. And, and you started the question, Neil, with the big six in English football being you know almost on a different playing field now, which is absolutely correct. But it's happening further down the leagues as well. You know, we're not too many years away from during the pandemic, the EFL talking about a collective agreement for perimeter pitch advertising. Mm -hmm. And it didn't pass the vote because the bigger clubs in that league at the time said, no, thank you. We can earn more doing that ourselves. And the same thing with salary caps in League One and League Two and in the championship, which we've done a lot of work on. So you are always going to get those problems. And I think the bigger challenge for me there is unless you really rip that structure up and start again and do something drastic, we are just going to see much more of the same. To be fair to the clubs, like from, from what we've seen of three or four of them, they, they do have segmentation. However, it's based upon a traditional model of applying segmentation. So they have the season ticket holder or their corporate ticket season ticket holders are definitely their VIP. You've then got someone who maybe attends 10 games per season and someone who attends just one game a year. And then they layer in, what else do they buy at the club? And the only data that the clubs have access to, and this is another challenge that they've got right now, is they really only have access to that ticketing data and they have access to merchandise data if they've got the right agreement in place with the fanatics of this world or JD Sports, whoever the retailer is going to be in that area. So they don't have this true real view 
and everyone talks about 360 degree view of your fan, single customer views, all these terms have been used for years, but they have a very limited or partial view of who those fans are. So their segmentation is limited per se. And it doesn't take into account any of those global followers other than they understand has somebody visited the website or downloaded the app from and what level of engagement do they have. So it's very segmentation basic and also limited in terms of looking at reach and levels of engagement which reach and engagement is really important for sponsorship so i think we know why they're doing it but it's not helping them get any direct revenue because they're looking at the fans in a slightly rear view mirror way rather than taking a forward looking view around the future value of fans and i'd love to get your view on where fan lifetime value fits within all of this because it's a term some use other industries use lifetime value all these terms are not necessarily new, but where does this fit within football? And what's your experience of those terms? I don't know if it does at the moment. It might be really patchy. It might be a couple of clubs doing something in and around it. But without trying to turn this into a Manchester United podcast, if you look <laughs> at the launch of the third kit the other day, the advertisement for that ended with a picture of a baby in the womb because they're talking about a fan being it's in your DNA. And they talked about it in terms of the devil, didn't they? And the red devil on the uh, on the badge and so on. So if you're being born into a fandom environment, clubs are not extracting value from those fans from the minute they're born yeah. to the minute they die. They are tapping into very, very small pockets of opportunity to monetize, which tends to be season ticket or match day ticket or pine a pint at the ground. And I think there needs to be much more sophisticated lifetime strategy that might be $5 a year because it's inconsequential spend. You multiply $5 a year by an 80-year lifespan and then you throw in a bit of extra you know, upsell here and there. You know, you, you're generating game-changing revenues and we cast aside that kind of utopia of competition and joint nature of production. Winner takes all. If Manchester United could add 100 million quid to their revenue stream, that's two players a year. I think let's let's take that kind of outward view of saying, look, you've got pent-up demand. You can't service it on the live event. How do you service that segment is, is one argument. I think the, the next piece on it, and I'm going to use the US as an example, is very topical given all the tours that have just happened over there right now. There's over 90 million people in the United States who have a really strong affinity for soccer. I'm going to use soccer right now. Okay. So more than the total population of the United Kingdom. Correct. The stat that we've seen through the work we've done, 42% of them haven't picked their team yet. <laughs> so you've wow. got 30-odd million people who are up for grabs. And so I think tapping into that kind of life, life stage mm. approach is really, really key. Look how popular soccer is becoming in the US. It's the third most supported sport. It's overtaken the Major League Baseball. So I think the demand is showing these huge signals there. It's a sport-mad population. They over-index for saturation of streaming products. All of the OTT platforms that are out there, the US have got the highest consumption of out of any market in the world. So you've got all of this digital signal that's saying, we want it, we want it, we want it. It's then a case of how do the clubs think about going after it? And we've been talking a lot about money on there around the financial models involved. We know for, and I'm going to pick on Man United, Barcelona and Real Madrid, there's 300 million of revenue that those three clubs are leaving on the table in the US alone. <laughs> so if there's not a reason to want to do something about it, I don't know what is. The 300 million between those three clubs could be the difference between winning Champions League or not because they can buy that next player. Mm. However, something that's really relevant again, and this is why the US taps into this, and I think why there's so much interest, there's so much M&A interest or activity going on around football. And let's go beyond Ryan Reynolds and Wrexham mm. and that story. Let's look at the higher end of it. 
what does like the next hundred million for Real Madrid, Barcelona, or Man United mean in terms of their share price or their valuation? Oh, increases in upsides in revenue tend to kind of be correlated with an increase in share price, don't they? And then of course all the activity that goes around in the media yep. and sporting success normally, although you don't always see a sporting success spike a spike a share price, but the reality is it makes the fundamentals of that organization stronger, as long as you've got a level of cost control. It means the dividends for shareholders and it means the company valuation ultimately increases. And we've seen that, haven't we, actually, with United and all the discussions around is there going to be a takeover, isn't there going to be a takeover? You know, share price spike and then it dropped down and it goes up again on a bit of news. And you can announce your quarterly results, your half yearly results, your full full year results, you hit your revenue markers and, and ultimately that share price and that valuation goes up. It's good business all around, isn't it? Do you think that six billion is cheap? someone to buy Ben United <laughs> yeah Dan will kind of laugh at this I remember speaking to I think it was uh, it was a financial publication uh, it might have been City AM uh, October so not too long after the Glazers said they were looking for strategic investment they were quite careful with their use of terminology there I fancied United to go for somewhere between seven and eight billion dollars and I got laughed at and um, you're right you know and this again I think is part of the difference isn't it you know we're talking about the English football culture again and versus the States, as you mentioned, Neil, and that those valuations. And you're right, you know, loads of people laugh at those valuations when you go, actually, there, there could be so much more for a Manchester United in terms of a, a full valuation. But the type of people that are wanting to invest, and particularly in the States with the, you know, private equity and, and all that comes with that, they're not laughing at those kind of numbers because they know exactly what's on the table and those figures you mentioned about what United, Barcelona and Real Madrid are leaving on the table, they know that and they're aware of it. And actually, part of the move there is that despite the growth that English football has had and despite the power of the Premier League, there is still room for growth and there is a lot that's left on the table. And these are the kind of investors and firms that see that and actually are picking up a relatively cheap asset with potential to flip it and turn a decent profit in the future. Yeah. It's a culture thing, isn't there? Kind of like sociologically, and I'm not a sociologist, right, for the record, and I'm sure anyone that's a sociologist listening to this will now think I'm totally raving mad. But culturally, we think profit's a dirty word. You mentioned the dirty word around monetization of fans. When people make money, we tend to get a little bit jealous and there'll be a lot of noise in the in and around the press and it's not ideal because it's this kind of visceral enjoyable game and should be going and watch it on a Saturday with your clacker and actually anything that's a bit more sanitised and a bit more corporate is you know Roy Keane's Prawn Sandwich Brigade quote of all those years ago still resonates now because it's a game for the people and I think we've kind of lost sight of who the people are I think average age of a season ticket holder is something like 52 or something it was certainly more higher than 45. Every club is up for sale for the right price whether it's openly out there on the market or not, that's the nature of the industry. So, yeah, there's there's a certainly a call for embracing that a little bit more, and and I don't think we're there yet. Yeah, I, I think that the, the wealth of interest is, I, I firmly believe, probably the number one catalyst. I think to change culture and philosophical alignment within a club, it will take new ownership to do it. Because if you look at the proportionate level of investment that the clubs make, and I keep banging the drum around like the match day fan is where all the time and investment goes in financially to drive. A pretty much guaranteed return, right? You know how much money typically fans spend around a game. It's this holy grail state of the unknown fan that they haven't been able to put a value to, and none of the clubs have got budgets. If you talk to any of the clubs around the concept that they need to acquire fans, they will almost laugh you out of the room because in their minds they are their fans already, so they don't need to acquire them. But any other industry model where someone isn't spending money with you but has an affinity for you, 
you spend media or advertising budget yeah. to try and acquire them. Go and, and buy the market share. You, that's yeah. that's these are the tactics that have to come. And I think the clubs are thinking about it. And I know some of them have got budget to test, right? And that's really welcoming. I think the real ultimate catalyst is going to be the big VCs or private equity companies or billionaires or state money that will come in that will be the real thing that drives it. Because to all the points you're raising, those organisations view this as return on investment. Six, 10, 12-year cycles where they want to flip the models, flip their returns. They've got other stakeholders. They have to be accountable in this way. And whilst a lot of the traditional fans that go to the games don't like this, if the reinvestment comes on the pitch and in the stadiums, then they're not going to worry. But it's just there's a this fine balancing act that you find rarely in any other industry vertical, which is why I think we've been able to spend so much time digging into this, outside of us all being fans as well. It's amazing, isn't it? I remember 15 years... No, it must be more than that. I was at St Mary's with my father-in-law watching Southampton play Chelsea. Now, Chelsea didn't have a bucket to go to the toilet in years and years ago. <laughs> All of a sudden, Abramovich comes in with all this money and every Chelsea fan is like absolutely buzzing. No one cares where the money came from because this wealthy bloke has just walked in. And I'll never forget that group of Chelsea fans in the corner all waving £10 notes at the Southampton fans because they had all this money. And they knew they were at the start of a journey that was going to involve loads of investment, was going to bring better players, was going to bring success. And you know, that's what we saw, wasn't it, with Chelsea over a 20-year period. We can debate until we're blue in the face about where some of that money has come from and some of the motives. But, you know, the reality is that clubs need resource through finance in order to generate better on-pitch performance. And as fans, that's what we want to see. I think that the summary I have of all of these things are, whilst fans are the saviour, fans can only be the saviour if the right investment in the value propositions that the fans care about comes, whether that's the product of the pitch, the game, or things like crypto, NFTs, Membership programs that they really get benefits from, like any traditional loyalty program as well. Do you think that's a, a fair summary of where we've arrived at within this conversation? Yeah, I think it probably brings us back to that fan lifetime value, doesn't it? Yep. That you were pitching, you know, there are things that are there that are being left on the table at the minute. And as you say, there is a core of fans that will be there no matter what and will spend X amount of money on, on what they've always spent money on. But the trick now is getting into the, the unknown fan, as you term it, which I think is a nice way to frame it, actually, and stretching that across the whole life cycle and, and engaging with people through different mediums that suit them, different platforms that are relevant to the age brackets bring them closer together in groups where you can but again do it throughout the lifetime and and appreciate that that'll be very different from age bracket to age bracket but again you're all as you say you know striving for the same purpose you are all fans of this club and ultimately you want to see your club do well on the pitch so yeah i think that brings it nicely back to that that fan lifetime value this is called caught offside right and if you fail to take the attention around where you are on the pitch or the signals around you on it you're missing out right you can't attack anymore and I think like missing out on these fan signals is really what's happening. But really putting the technology, the right people in place to go after those opportunities is where there's some work to be done, I think, is is a fair summary of all of these things. So wanted to thank you both so much for the first episode of Court Offside. For all of those that have been listening or viewing us right now, please share, subscribe, like. We'll be back on with you guys in a few weeks' time. And in the meantime, let's hope Manchester United beat Wolves and Sheffield Wednesday have a roaring weekend as well, Dan. Yeah, we can but hope. Nice one, Neil. Been really Cheers, good. Neil. Thank you.